Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway, here with Cameron Conway. And today we're very excited to introduce some special guests to the show. We have Claire Williams, the co-founder of the Foundation for Social Change. And we have Jay-Z, the professor at UBC. And they're joining us today to talk about a study that was done recently called Unconditional Cash Transfers Reduce Homelessness. So to the both of you, we want this to be a great representation of the work that you've done through this study, uh, both on the social and economic impacts of the study. So why don't we let you guys start it out? Tell us a bit about the study that was conducted and how it has gone. Sure. Thank you. Hi, Christine Cameron. Thanks so much for having us here today. Um, So ultimately, this project um, was born um, out of inspiration that we drew from a TED Talk by an amazing gentleman called Rutger Bregman. He wrote a book called um, Utopia for Realists, and uh, he did a TED Talk which talked about the universal basic income and nested within that conversation. He also talked about the power of direct cash transfers. That's where you put cash in the hands of people who need it most. And this is something that's been tried time and again in the economic South to great effect. There's been a lot of randomized control trials whereby they have won over and again proven the power of just giving people um, cash, these trust-based mechanisms. And my co-founder Franz and I, you know, we brought our attention back here, back home to Vancouver, but across Canada and North America. We saw increasing numbers of people experiencing homelessness and we're like, I wonder if something like cash transfers would work here. You know, we keep doing the same thing. We're maintaining the status quo. We're not seeing any appreciable improvement in the number of folks who are experiencing homelessness. And so we're like, okay, we're going to do this. We are going to test the power of direct cash transfers with people experiencing homelessness. And we are going to run this as a randomized control trial. That's kind of the gold standard. We knew that we needed data, especially in the face of like gross prejudice and um, bias against people living in poverty. And that's when Jiaying came into our lives. So um, I had reached out to Jiaying based upon some of her amazing research that looks at the cognitive impacts of living in poverty. And through conversation, we decided that we wanted to partner on this work. And I'll pass it over to Jiaying to take it from there. Yeah, so um, Claire and I uh, teamed up in 2016, seven years of working together, and we ran the world's first control trial where we gave $7,500 to angels homelessness with another group of 65 individuals as a control group. So that's what we did. That's pretty amazing. I mean, it's so different in terms of the way of attacking this problem of homelessness. And I know that right now we're in a place where a lot of people are experiencing housing insecurity. I mean, rents have gotten sky high and it's not unusual for people to be evicted and then have a lot of trouble finding something that fits their budget where they can still feed their family and feel a lever of comfort with their living. So can you just describe for me the selection criteria? How did you choose the people that would participate in this study? Sure. So we, we Claire and I uh, employed a team of interviewers to go to shelters in the Lower Mainland. Uh, we recruited people who are less, homeless for less than two years. Uh, 
who had no severe levels of substance use, alcohol use, and psychiatric symptoms, uh, who are Canadian citizens or permanent residents, and age of 19 to 65. So to Jia Ying's point, you know, we were selective about the population that we chose to work with, and that was really intentional. And we're seeing some of the comments in on our article, as well as some of the LinkedIn posts that, you know, we were cherry picking people so that this project could be successful. But what we were doing was working with a population where we weren't going to create further risk of harm. Um, it was really important to us that we created no harm. And no one has ever done this before in the world. So when you're starting any new project, you pilot with the easier population. You get your lessons learned from that work, and then you start to expand who you can work with. So, you know, people hold that as a criticism. I actually think that's one of the strengths of this study, because we don't want to create harm in people's lives. Well, I guess a lot of people kind of throw homelessness into one big homogenous demographic, and they don't want to kind of separate out sort of the different strata layers that there is going on there. And yeah, to some degree, you want to see some people succeed with this because you want to kind of build a proper model going forward, right? You don't want only failures. Well, and I would say as well, to your point of doing no harm, I mean, if you gave people that had a known history of mental health concerns or addiction, a large infusion of cash, that could be detrimental to society. So of course, you were trying to make sure that you weren't putting yourself in the category where you couldn't absolutely accurately assess the results with people that are really just kind of down and out and experiencing a period of transition in their life where they're wanting to improve, they're wanting to get out of this situation, but they've just found themselves in a position where it's just not possible without some help. And I think that speaks to a lot of us today because we all have experienced these times, not necessarily homelessness, but where we can have that instability to our own economic security. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, so people in our study did have mental health challenges. They were possibly using substances, same with alcohol, but it was below a threshold. So we worked with some amazing clinical scientists at St. Paul's Hospital to establish what those thresholds would be. So again, it's about creating no harm, but also, you know, I have struggled with my own mental health. Um, so there is no bias there or prejudice around people with mental health issues and not being able to handle cash, large sums of cash, but there is a threshold in terms of people's functionality. And we're also not saying that it's not going to work with folks who have more complex issues, but we really wanted to test this with a population that felt safer before we start introducing it to other populations, other subsets of the populations, to Cameron's point, right? Homelessness is not a homogenous population and it consists of very diverse groups of people, just like the general population. Um, and, you know, maybe if we did do something with folks with complex needs, we would just look at more wraparound support. So it's something that we might investigate in the future. Well, it seems like a very responsible way to kind of take this first step with this big kind of landmark study that you've conducted at this point in time. And of course, there's room to grow and develop from that. So I'm sure everyone's wanting to know, based on the results that you found, how did the participants spend the money? So the cash recipients uh, spent more money on rent, food, transit, and durable goods like furniture and used car. Um, they did not increase their spending on alcohol, drugs, and cigarettes. And I think this is an important data point because it challenges the common 
stereotype that if we give people in homelessness money, they will squander it on alcohol and drugs. So I think this is an important data point that we discovered, challenging you know, biases that we hold against people in homelessness. And as a result of their responsible spending, uh, they actually reduce their homelessness duration by 99 days per person per year on average. And this reduced homelessness duration has direct cost savings for society and governments. And we did a cost-benefit analysis where we found that each cash, cash recipient generated a total savings of $8,277 per year. And that means there's actually a net savings of over $700 per person per year. So what this means is that the cash transfer is actually cost-effective. It's cheaper than what we currently spend on homelessness. That's pretty amazing. And I mean, when you think about it, when we're finding ourselves in a reactive situation, the costs of emergency services are always going to be greater than a pre-planned spend or something that we know people can tolerate. And really, the tolerance of this is what you were testing, or it appears to be that way anyways. But the economic impact, I think, is something that we can't overlook because as a society, we need to make sure that we're distributing our resources in a fair and equitable manner. So can you just talk to me a little bit about UBI and the tie-in here and how you think this sample of a cash transfer could be beneficial in the future? So I have to emphasize that we did not follow the basic in income approach, which is typically a monthly in a payment of, you know, somewhere between $500 and $1,000. Um, instead, we chose to give the participants a one-time lump sum of, you know, $7,500. There are many reasons for this. Uh, one reason is that $7,500 gives you more greater purchasing power and freedom than monthly smaller payments would do. You can pay for rent, deposit, a used car, you can make bigger purchases, you can pay off your debt. Whereas monthly payments as you know, typical welfare payments, uh, I think don't allow you to make those large purchases. And in our opinion, the monthly payments actually you know, keep people in poverty. They don't let people get out of homelessness easily. Uh, so that's that's one reason we opt for one one lump sum as opposed to regular payments. But this said, our study does have implications for basic income. It does highlight the need to raise the income floor of the most marginalized individuals in society. It just shows that the current system, the current welfare payments are not enough, are nowhere close to being enough. So that's what our data can suggest, but we do need more evidence to showcase the impact of cash transfer on more people and also to, to try different transfer frequencies or, or amounts going forward. Uh, those are open questions, but it, our study does provide um, evidence for basic income. Yeah, and I'd love to build off of that, Jiaying, too. I think our study also just introduces the notion of cash as an intervention in general. People have, and you've noted it, 
Christine, um, as we've been talking, that people have these biases and prejudice about handing out of cash. And so I think through our work, we're starting to normalize that in some ways. But even in the face of very clear evidence that these kind of interventions work, whether it be the project that we ran with Foundations for Social Change with people experiencing homelessness, or in Ontario, their universal basic income pilot, despite very clear evidence or trends towards these interventions working really well for people, it's incredible, but even in the face of that, there's still bias. People still don't want to believe what the evidence is showing. We have a lot of philosophical beliefs around like, oh, you can't give money to people. Like, you know, you've got to give people a hand up, not a handout. But when, you know, you talked about the increasing costs of rent, like I have family members that have good jobs. They can't afford rent anymore. They've moved back in with their with their parents. Like it really is a time and place where we need to start being more creative about how we support people. And the fact is we live on a money on a money planet. And so in many cases, money is the right intervention. Well, and I mean, we do live in a society that has a lot of subsidization, like I'm thinking about childcare and things like that, where when you want more of a certain outcome, the government or the powers that be will put resources towards that, right? I mean, in the end of last year, we saw daycare costs coming down and we've seen like child tax benefits, things like that. Essentially, really, it's just a way of doing the same thing, putting money in the hands that people that might need them at that time. But at the same time, I believe you had to get like a special dispensation from the government where your cash infusion didn't kind of conflict with their existing benefits. And this is kind of a big thing coming too, where if someone does get this kind of assistance, do they get penalized on the back end by the government? Yeah, we were really fortunate working here in BC. We built a relationship with the provincial government whereby they gave us a policy exemption for folks who were receiving cash and were on benefits, that their existing benefits wouldn't be clawed back. So that may look like income assistance, which after they paid their shelter allowance is only $375 anyway, but more to the point, like the premium MSP, so medical services plan that we have here in British Columbia, we absolutely wanted to make sure, again, that we weren't creating any harm and that people weren't worse off as a result of receiving the cash transfer. Because as we have alluded, this was an experiment. No one had done this before. We had no idea if it was going to work. So we really wanted to mitigate that risk. And I think great credit to the province for allowing folks to receive that money as um uh, under a different, they, they weren't considering it income. And I think, again, like, you know, this is where our work can inform policy as well to support folks who are living in poverty. And just, you know, you cannot move forward in your life if for every extra dollar you earn, your benefits are then clawed back. You're in this constant cycle and never getting ahead. So I think it also speaks to, you know, building compassion into our policies as well. And, you know, bringing the humanity back into the conversation and just recognizing that, you know, we don't all have the same privilege. We didn't all start at the same starting line. And some people need more support than others. Well, I think that's all great as an outcome. And would you say when you were working with the participants in the study, what the outcomes were for them? So was this a change that they saw in their lives going forward beyond the period of the study? Or do you think the year was just too short of a time with the idea being that they received this cash transfer at the very beginning, but they knew it was a finite resource. They knew it was not going to be continuing on an ongoing basis. Yeah. So. 
a lot of our, so we, we, did, we did a qualitative piece to, to this study as well, which we didn't cover in the paper, where we actually interviewed participants in depth every six months. Um, and based on these qualitative interviews, our cash recipients said, you know, this cash transfer was life-changing. So they've, they found huge benefits of this one-time cash transfer. But as you rightly noticed, we only follow people for one year. And it's, it may not be sufficient to see the long-term impact, but my take on the follow-up is that this cash transfer is still not sufficient in an expensive city like Vancouver. This, most participants have used up the cash transfer by six months. So after six months, a lot of, I mean, most of the cash participants are in stable housing. They remain in stable housing, whereas the participants eventually caught up. And this is because if you're in a shelter in Vancouver, you, you, you have to wait on average six months to get into stable housing, and they did. So by 12 months, you actually don't see a difference between cash and control participants. So I don't think this result would change after one year, right? So if we were to get them again at this point, we'll get in touch with them at this point, which is three years after the completion of the project, I would say that the outcomes of the two groups are going to be very similar. I guess I can put up my pragmatic hat here and say that really this is kind of making the transition out of homelessness a bit more efficient, even just shaving off a few months that is still like a net benefit for society, right? Yeah, we're speeding up the process. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a net benefit for society. And it's also a net benefit for that individual. Um, Experiencing homelessness is not an easy journey. Um, People are exposed to violence, a lot of trauma as a result of that. So if you can save somebody you know, 99 days of experience and being exposed um, to those kind of threats, I think there's a win on the individual level as well. Well, and I understand there's still a good amount of research to be done as you work through this, but what is your feeling having gotten through this study when you're weighing a cash transfer and a monthly income? What do you kind of feel like the balance would be? Do the participants need a large or a larger kind of one-time lump sum? Do they need larger infusions of cash at different periods through their homelessness and their transition into stable housing? Or is a regular monthly income more of the solution? But I know, Jay-Z, you kind of alluded to that's probably not, at least at the level that we're seeing it now with welfare, the full answer. Yeah, absolutely. I think the current system is inadequate. It's failing. um, And we need to innovate and improve the current solutions to homelessness. And our study suggests that this one-time lump sum can be one of the solutions that help people get out of homelessness. Again, as I said, $7,500 is not enough, certainly not enough in Vancouver. Our participants are still under poverty uh, with the cash transfer. Their personal annual income is $12,000. With the cash transfer, they're still below the the poverty line, right? that may speak to why we don't find a lot of other benefits uh, of the cash transfer, like subjective well-being or cognitive function. I think it's still not enough. And if I could, I mean, I would, I would love to do more transfers or larger transfers going forward. 
Yeah, and I was going to say to your point, Christine, about kind of the form that those transfers take, whether it's smaller monthly payments or a larger one-time payment, I think it's an end and an end. So the research shows that when you give people a larger sum of cash, it triggers long-term thinking. And that makes sense, right? Like if we only get a $10 allowance, you know, every week, we're only going to spend it on smaller things. But if somebody all of a sudden gave you $1,000, it expands your mind in terms of the possibilities of what's available for you. And if you think of that in terms of the current income assistance um, process, people get the smallest amount of money. There's zero incentive for them to save. In most cases, it keeps them in survival mode. Whereas if you get this larger sum of cash, like there were a number of participants in our study who had these dreams about starting their own business. But when you have an extra $100 a month, how are you ever going to make that happen? And we're also saying that it's not necessarily going to be able to happen with $7,500 because to Jia Ying's point, you know, that only goes so far in a city like Vancouver. But how could we set up payments where people receive a larger sum at the front end and then smaller payments on an ongoing basis? So I think we can be more creative around how we look at income supports moving forward. So it sounds like you're really kind of focusing on helping the participants understand that there's a real possibility for a better future after this. And without that belief, there's no real incentive to change because why not just consume the money today, enjoy it, and then go back to poverty later, right? If there's truly no way out. Yeah, it's kind of hard to quantify hope, but it kind of is a big factor in this is if you take this money, there's a hope of improving yourself. You can use it wisely. If you don't have that hope, then there's the temptation to kind of misuse. And that's where people kind of default to when they look at the homeless population. Isn't that right? Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's a temptation. I think it's a coping mechanism. So as I alluded to earlier, it's a traumatic experience to um, live in homelessness. And if I put myself in their shoes and I just had, there was no end in sight, I'm absolutely going to go and spend that money on beer. I'm absolutely going to do whatever I can to self-medicate so that this experience becomes more bearable. But then if you give me a larger sum of cash, I know that I'm getting out of that. So all of a sudden the incentives change. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's human nature, right? Oh, yeah. And yeah, I, was, I was digging through your appendix and I found the chart on the reasons for homelessness. And overwhelmingly, it's forceful loss of housing. It's not sort of the big trigger things we think push people into that kind of lifestyle. Well, then let's talk for a second about perception, because really, as a society, this is what needs to change. How do we begin? And maybe it's through conversations like this, but how do we start educating people that this type of assistance really could have a net benefit to all of us, both from government spending and our own economic impact, but also as a society, eventually moving to the place that we have more contributing members to society that makes us all better and stronger. Yeah, I think we can start by counteracting the harmful, insidious stereotypes of homelessness. I think we need to message the public what the impact is of the cash transfer so we can tell people that the cash transfer actually reduces with no increased spending on these temptation goods. I think that would counteract this stereotype in the first place as as and as, as we show in the in the paper, this narrative um, actually improves public support for a cash transfer policy. Another way to improve public perception is to Tell people that this cash transfer is cost effective. 
it can actually reduce taxpayers' money and government spending on homelessness. So I think those are the two ways where we can change public perception. Well, and then at a policy level, what do you think is the direction that we need to move to um, in terms of changing the way governments are looking at this or thinking at this currently? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. So for me, it's the compassion piece. We do not have compassion built into our policies. And it's about time that we start looking and thinking about um, our populations who need a bit more support with more compassion and understanding. But I also think we need more evidence-based policy. So we are seeing, you know, from our randomized control trial, the evidence is there that there's a cost savings to society, that it empowers people to move out of homelessness faster. But even in the face of that evidence, there's still a lot of inertia within government to actually take this evidence and now convert it into policy that would ultimately save them money and support the populations that they're built to serve. And then I think you have more to add, Jiaying. Yeah, so um, I'm glad you asked this question because I want to tell Canadians that Canada is the only country in the world actively discussing national framework for basic income, also known as Bill S233. This bill is currently being discussed in the Senate of Canada, and I'm working with uh, a few senators on how to present this bill, how to discuss this bill, what evidence how to address the criticisms of this bill uh, from the conservative side. So we are making changes to policy on a national level. And um, I'm very happy that Canada is, I think, the only country in the world that's moving in that direction. Well, these things take so much time and the democratic process being what it is, you're going to have people on all ends of the spectrum kind of going back and forth at it. But I think you've hit the key. You've got empirical evidence now and you're building your base of evidence that's only going to support this cause, right? So as you're trying to build policy, I think you had said, Claire, evidence-based policy is so important because whether you believe it or not really doesn't matter because you can point at the actual facts. You can point at the statistics, the research, and the work that's been done. And I'm sure that if you do this again in the future, it'll be a broader base study. And maybe you can speak really quickly about if there are plans to take this uh, one step further. Yes, we are. We're currently running an expansion project with more people in homelessness, and um, we'll wait to see what that study shows. Can't disclose a lot on that study because it's currently ongoing. But I think Claire and I have actually talked to a lot of organizations and governments around the world who have started piloting cash transfers to help people cope with poverty and and homelessness. So Canada's on the leaderboard here. We're kind of figuring this out as a society, and hopefully others will follow as we take the lead on this. We absolutely are. We've done, Canada has done two basic income pilots in the past, right? There's the Manitoba minimum income pilot, and there is the Ontario pilot that Claire talked about. And now with this new LEAF project and the ongoing experiments, um, we're absolutely the leader in this space. 
Fantastic. So are there any final thoughts you'd like to share about the study or about the process in general that we haven't discussed yet? And I'd like to ask you both that question individually. So if there's anything that you think would benefit the listeners to better understand, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I guess my final thoughts are just, you know, as you move throughout your day and you see people who are living in poverty or people who are experiencing homelessness and you come up against your own internal bias and prejudice, put yourself in their shoes. What would you want if you found yourself in that position? And I think that's a really game-changing conversation. Do you want the status quo paternalistic approach that treats you like a child and tells you what you have to do and where you have to go and gives you the smallest amount of money possible? Or do you want a system and a society that really believes in you, that believes in your capacity as a human being who's naturally resourceful and creative and whole to move forward in your life so that you can empower yourself and to your point, you know, become a quote unquote contributing member of society. But also, as I say that, recognizing that there are some folks that will never be that person, but that does not mean that we should leave them behind. Um, And like the saying goes, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so I think that's something that people should really keep in mind as they go throughout their day. So addressing each individual with compassion for their intrinsic value of being human, being member of our big family of the human race, is essentially how you're viewing the value of an individual. Yeah, for me, that that's always been my inspiration and why I started this organization. And Jiaying, um, what are your thoughts? I completely echo what Claire just said. Um, I think it's like a cancer treatment. If we know this treatment was 90% of the patients with significant cost savings to society and, and saving human lives, why don't we try it? It seems like a, the, a, the rational approach. But we also recognize that maybe there's a 5% or 10% people who will have side effects who will respond negatively to this treatment, right? Does not mean that we shouldn't try it. And that's how I see cash transfers. So they're a way of improving the overall health of society. I think that's a great way to kind of wrap it up for today. Again, we were joined by Claire Williams, Foundation for Social Change, and Jay-Z, professor at UBC. Yeah. And for those listening, we will link the academic paper in the notes. And I would like to say it's very nice that's publicly available. I didn't need to get my JSTOR subscription out or anything. So anyone can go and read this and kind of see the data for themselves. Thanks so much, Christine and Cameron, for inviting us into the conversation. So thank you for listening to us today. I know this is a very different episode than what we typically do on the show, but I felt that the social and the economic impacts both align in this particular case, and this is something that deserves a lot more of our attention. So please continue the conversation. And as always, if you're looking for help for personal financial services, you can find us over at Braun Financial, braunfinancial.com. But until next time, we will say take care and all the best.